The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So the plane was flying at 14,500 feet. There was this woman named Joan. She was like this bank executive from North Carolina, and she had jumped out of planes before. And she was kind of doing the thing that kind of gave her life. She lived a kind of a boring, white-collar life, so she liked to jump out of airplanes. And so she's cruising at 14,500 feet, jumps out, a rush of adrenaline. The wind is whipping past her as she free falls, and she pulls her ripcord, and there's a malfunction. Her chute doesn't open. And, uh, and it's terrifying. Another surge of adrenaline courses through Joan's body. And, uh, but she remembers she has a backup chute. She's prepared for this. And, and so she pulls the ripcord of her backup chute, and thank goodness it deploys. But sort of in the panic and in the disarray of that moment, something happens where she somehow collapses the chute and gets tangled in its cords and begins to fall at 80 miles an hour, wrapped up in the parachute, barely slowing down her descent. And she falls all this way, and she slams into the earth, 80 miles an hour, preparing for death. She hit the earth so hard uh, on one side of her body, literally her fillings were jarred out of her teeth. Her rib cage was crushed. Her heart was bruised. Her heart was barely beating. It was awful. There's that old saying, if it weren't for bad luck, you'd have no luck at all. That's this woman's story. And on top of all that, guess where she lands? She lands on a pile or a mound of fire ants. And if you've ever been seeing fire ants in the Carolinas down south, they're nasty and their stings hurt like crazy. So here she is laying on this pile of fire ants, unable to move, barely breathing, heart is, is severely damaged, barely beating, and she receives over 200 bites or 200 stings from these fire ants. What an unfortunate series of events. However, things aren't always the way they seem. The doctors that treated Joan because she survived, they believed that the ants actually saved her life. They theorized that the stings of the ants shocked her heart enough to keep it beating. And so, you might say, well, that's providential. She falls through the heavens, slams into the earth, happens to land on top of an ant pile. I can imagine if I were Joan in that moment laying uh, near death on a pile of fire ants that now begin to sting me mercilessly and I can't move, I'm probably not thinking it's God's providence at that point. I'm probably shaking my fist at the heavens and saying, could it get any worse than this? So what is, what is providence? We sometimes use that phrase, maybe willy-nilly a little bit. What is, what is this? It's a doctrine, actually. What is the doctrine of divine providence or the doctrine of God's providence? In our workbook this week that we're going to ask you to take home, we, we kind of unpack the word providence. It's really, it's two words that make one, pro and then videnz, which is like pro and the word videnz is like, it's like this Latin word that means video. And so the idea of pro means before. And, and evidence means to see. And so the word providence literally means to see before. And that's really the heart of God's providence. He goes before us. He sees and knows everything even before it happens, even the most painful of things. The Proverbs tell us that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Proverbs tell us a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way. And perhaps most significantly, and for our discussion today, God's providence gives us providence gives us proper perspective in times of pain. Because all of us have gone through times of pain. And as we wrestle with this idea of our God being a providential God, it's his providence that gives us proper perspective in times of pain. Charles Spurgeon, perhaps the most famous preacher in the 19th century, famously battled with a, a debilitating uh, uh, a battle with depression. He wrote about it often. One of the things that Charles Spurgeon said about his depression is this. He said, if God is in control, if his name is Hallowed, that means he is in control of my depression. He said, fate is blind, providence has eyes. That's how God could say to the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for destruction, to give you a future and a hope. I know we like to like look at that verse, but you know the historical context behind that is the Israelites were disobedient. And they were about to suffer God's hand of discipline. They were going to be exiled into the Babylonian uh, captivity for 70 years. They were on the verge of entering 70 years of very painful and brutal existence. And on the front end of that, God speaks over them. Hey, it's going to stink. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. Hear my promise. 
My plans for you are not to destroy you. It's for good. It's for a future. It's for a hope. That's God's providence spoken over the people of Israel. I think about what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 8. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. We often go to that sometimes way too quickly when we're sitting with a friend who's suffering and we don't sit with them in their pain long enough, but this is a truth of the providence of God. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say in in verse 31 that if God is for us, who can be against us? The doctrine of God's providence allows us to rest in that truth. For those of us that are in Christ Jesus, God is for us. God is for us, and that truth radically transforms the way we see pain. That means there is a practical hope found in this doctrine. It means that the events of my life are not a random act of cruelty or luck. God is orchestrating it all for our good and for his glory. I read this week that if God is not in control of all things, then he is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, if he is not the ruler of the universe, then he is not God. If our free will can trump divine providence, then who ultimately is God? We are. This gets really hard. When we start talking about things like providence, it gets really hard when we start to wrestle with real pain. And this is where pastoral conversations come into play. And so I don't want to stand up here today and talk about God's providence at a 30,000-foot level and miss out or be tone-deaf to the fact that the people of God suffer real pain on the regular. And so as I talk about the providence of God, I'm not trying to sort of just skip over the real pain and the real difficulty and the real challenge that the people of God face on a regular basis. God is provident over our most painful moments. I remember many years ago, I pastored another church. We were preaching through the book of, of Daniel. And we, and we had that, the sermon of the lion's den. Like everyone knows that part about Daniel, where God stopped the mouth of the lions and preserved Daniel. It's a great story. And the sermon was powerful. And the people of God responded at the, at the way in which our God stopped the mouth of the lion and preserved Daniel's life. And after the service, people left. And I noticed in the sanctuary, someone remained. And I watched over about 20 minutes. As the sanctuary thinned out, there was just this one person left. And I knew her barely. She had been recent uh, to our church, maybe over the last six or eight months. And, and she's sitting in there, and she looked heavy in her heart. So I went and sat next to her, and, uh, and we began to chat. And uh, she told me a horrific story. She, she had mentioned that that previous weekend she was sexually assaulted. And I just sat there crying with this woman. And then she looked at me and she said, I guess God chose not to shut the mouth of that lion. See, that's the tension and that's the reality that we have to live with in a world where God is provident, his will unfolds, it's for our good and for his glory, and it's not always easy. It's messy, and we have to wrestle with what this looks like lived out in our life in the real. And so today, as we look at the painful story of Joseph near the end of the book of Genesis, we have to understand it in light of God's providence. So, so what is this doctrine? Let me, let me read you a couple definitions that I've picked up from a couple theologians who I respect. One says this about the providence of God. God, in eternity past, in the counsel of his own will ordained everything that will happen, yet in no sense is God the author of sin, nor is human responsibility removed. That's one definition of God's providence. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, here is divine providence. Simply, God works his will in and through the actions of all people, whether good or bad. Another writes, the doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by fate, but by God. And so in light of the series that we've been going through, this series looking back at our families and the origins of our own stories, and then looking forward, applied to this topic, the big idea is simply this. The gospel providentially redeems our story for God's glory and our good. And that's essentially the point we're trying to settle into today. The gospel providentially redeems our story and God's glory for our good. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter. We have to think of these final words of Joseph in the final chapter of Genesis 
After the horrendous betrayal that he received at the hands of his brothers, we'll unpack this here a little bit later in our, in our sermon, but he had been horrendously betrayed by his brothers, unspeakable pain, and here's Joseph's brothers in his presence. He's in a position of authority over them. They sold him into slavery and tried to have him killed. They're fearful because their father has now died. They're worried that vengeance will now be enacted upon them because of the evil they had done to their brother Joseph. And here's Joseph with his brothers, and he speaks these incredible words, Genesis 50, beginning in verse 19. Joseph says to his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Verse 20 is an incredible verse to me. You intended to harm me, but God intended this for good. Joseph is able to look back at at the pain of his life, spent 13 years in slavery and in prison in a foreign land. He's able to look back over all of it, the generational dysfunction. He's able to look back at the sin that led his brothers to hating him and betraying him so mercilessly. He's able to look back at the generational sin patterns passed on to him from his great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, his father Jacob. He's able to look at the the sin that was dwelling in his brothers when they betrayed him and sold him into slavery. There was pain and dysfunction in every direction. And rather than see only the sin and the pain, he recognized in that moment that God was sovereign over all of it. And I think of his brothers who were fearing for their lives, how comforting for those brothers in that moment to, to know that though they had caused immense pain in their brother's life and in their father's life, and in their own lives, and in the lives of many others, that their, their deception and their lying and their scheming had not thwarted the plan of God. But actually, God had used it to bring about the salvation of many. And in light of God's providence, Joseph was able to look at his brothers and leave the righting of all wrongs to God. He was able to look at his brothers and see God's providence in their malice. He was able to look at his brothers and repay evil with forgiveness and affection. And it was a trust and a belief in Joseph's heart in the providence of God that enabled him to forgive, that brought healing into his life, that allowed him to see God's hand at work even in his pain, that allowed him to trust in God's will. See, God providentially redeemed Joseph's story for his glory and for the good of Joseph and others. The perspectives of of Joseph in, in Genesis 50 verse 20 is profound. I read this week that for every look at someone else's evil intentions, we ought to take 10 looks at God's providential purposes. I love that. For every look at someone else's evil intentions, we ought to take 10 looks at God's providential purposes. And so as Joseph looks over his brothers and says what what was meant for evil, God meant for good, that could really be spoken over all of Genesis, right? The serpent's evil conniving in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's fall, the flood, all of the horrible things, all of it set in motion, this overarching plan of God to bring redemption to all of humankind. Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Now listen, in this series, over the last three weeks, we've asked you to look back at your family of origin. And for some of you, that's been fine. And for some of you, that's been really, really hard. We we think that it's important for us as disciples of Jesus to, to ask questions about why we do the things we do. What is my autopilot response? And should I just respond on autopilot? Or ought I think about what God's desire for my life is? And so we've asked you to pay attention to some things. And we've given you some homework each week. We've asked you to to pay attention to generational sin patterns that exist in your family back to three and four generations. We've asked you to, to pay attention to patterns that exist within relationships in your family. To look at the stories that you tell yourself. Especially the untrue stories that you tell yourself. And we've asked you to apply the gospel at each point along the way. And for some of you... This has caused you to look at painful parts of your past. And it's probably not been easy for some of you as you sat alone with a workbook or with your thoughts and wrote down some stories of the past that you kind of just tried to skip over in life. Painful family dynamics, painful relationships, painful seasons, painful events. And so my hope today, what I want us to do through the lens of Joseph, is I want you and me to view our family of origin through the lens of divine providence. 
I want you and me today to do our very best to view our family of origin through the lens of divine providence. Last time I preached, I, and, I've, and I'm pretty open about the, my family of origin. I, I'm pretty open about the sin struggles in my own personal life as a preacher. But even after I got off the stage a couple of weeks ago, when I, when I kicked off this series, I, I regretted that I, I, I tended just to cast my family as all negative. I mentioned uh, three weeks ago when I preached last that in my family, the conflict resolution strategy was simply this. He who can out-anger the other wins the argument. And that led to lots of sparks and broken things in my household as a kid. I mentioned that my mother uh, was an alcoholic and growing up as, uh, with an alcoholic in the home brought some challenging things into my life that I brought into adulthood. But there was a redemptive side to those stories that I love to tell as well. I mean, my parents, in addition to that, my parents had the most, the most difficult marriage you can imagine where the most painful wounds were afflicted one to the other for years and years. And by all accounts, mom and dad should have been divorced and given up on their marriage. And everybody would have counseled them to do so. And no one would have questioned why they did it, but they didn't. In fact, I remember, this is bizarre, but I remember, uh, I might have said this before, but many years ago, my mother was in a near fatal car accident in 1999. She was ejected by a car in a a rollover accident in Western Montana. She was flown by a helicopter to Missoula, Montana, then flown by a jet to Seattle, broke her neck, just shattered her pelvis, went, went through horrible, horrible, horrible suffering from this car accident. My father was with her every step of the way. And when she got released from the hospital, my father just took like two months off work and just was my mom's right-hand care person. He just cared for her, provided for her, fed her, bathed her, loved her. And I remember my mom calling all of us about a month or two into his care just to give praise to my dad for the way that he had loved her and cared for her in those moments. And I remember just thinking, God redeemed a rollover accident in which my mother was ejected to bring back intimacy and trust and love and forgiveness into their marriage. It's incredible. So my parents, I look at the redemptive side of the story. My mom got sober in a very real way, has fought for recovery, and not just to be sober, but to become the woman God desires her to be. And I get to look at my mom today as an example of tremendous resolve. And it's through the power of the gospel in her life that she's done that. There's a redemptive side to that story. My family is an angry family, but I would say beyond that, we're a passionate family, right? I tell my kids this all the time. Like, yeah, I'm edgy, but I'm passionate. That could be, like, boring, uh, but I love so well, you guys. The redemptive side of that, sincerely, is uh, the person who tends to struggle with anger also loves without boundaries. And as God redeems it, I'm learning to, to, to... Still learning to to not respond in anger and wrath, but to respond in love and compassion towards the people in my life. I've seen the redemptive hand of God at work in my life. And and, and honestly, because my family was not pristine and perfect, because we didn't grow up in the church, my parents weren't in ministry, and there were sins and issues in my family, you know the unique way that has qualified me to minister to others? I've been a pastor for 20-plus years, and you know when I'm sitting down in my office and looking in the eyes of someone that's dealt with really painful things? I can identify. I've experienced what it's like to grieve at the graveside of someone who's committed suicide who I love. I know what it's like to grow up in an alcoholic home. I've seen the ugliness of divorce. I know what it's like to struggle with sexual sins. And I see the God, God's redemptive hand at work in my role as a pastor that I can sit with people and I can identify with them in their pain but point to something greater and truer, a redemptive work that God does in the midst of those things. If you were to look at your life If you were to view your family of origin through the lens of divine providence, that what was meant for evil, God intended for good, I wonder how that might change the way you view your family and you view the the history of your life. What about Joseph? The story of Joseph is an incredible story. I mean, it begins in Genesis chapter 30. We're introduced to him. So really, I have to summarize 20 uh, chapters here in a few minutes. I think I'm uniquely up to the challenge. I tend to talk fast. I'm not going to do that today. We have Joseph. His story is an incredible story. He's from this family. We know his family stories. Great-grandfather was Abraham. God made covenant promise with Abraham. We see it happening beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1 through 3. God says to Abraham, through your family line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this plays out over chapters. And then we see habitual sin patterns lived out in Abraham's life sins against his wife, sins of deception. We see it played out. We see it in his son Isaac's life, and we see it in his son, or his grandson Jacob's life. And Jacob is Joseph's father. 
And looking in last week, Jeremy unpacked the storyline of Jacob, and he was a guy who, from his birth, his name was, uh, was heel grabber. He was deceiver from birth. And this was an identity that, jo- that Jacob took upon himself, and we looked through the early years of Jacob's life, really through the entirety of Jacob's life, and he was a deceiver. He deceived his, bro- his father and his brother for personal gain. He stole birthrights and blessings. He ended up getting deceived by Laban, his father-in-law. And at this point in Jacob's life where he's really wrestling, we see this scene, and Jeremy unpacked this beautifully last week, where there's Jacob wrestling alone on the side of a river with Jesus himself, or God himself, and he's given a new name. He's no longer to be called Jacob Deceiver, but he's called Israel, which means wrestles with God. And God touches his hip, and Jacob forever limps, having to hold on to the staff as a physical representation of his dependency on God, no longer needing to be a deceiver. And, and, and then Jacob's son is Joseph. He's the fourth generation in this family that we've been looking at. We're introduced to him all the way back in Genesis 30. Jacob, his first love, was, was, uh, was Rachel. And Rachel was the woman he wanted to marry. He was deceived into marrying Leah. But Rachel was his, his true love, and, and Rachel couldn't conceive. And so, so, his, so Leah's having children, and his maidservants are having children. And suddenly along the way, God grants Rachel to conceive, and she gives birth to Joseph. And he's this beloved son to Jacob. He loves jo- Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And we see that generational sin of favoritism that played out through the generations being played out here as Jacob has a special affection for Joseph. In fact, he makes him a robe of many colors that Joseph can don as sort of an outward token of his favored status with his father. And then there's these these brothers. He has 10 older brothers, one younger brother and a sister. And these brothers hate Joseph for obvious reasons. He was this 17-year-old kid who was a tattletale, a goody-two-shoes, a brown-noser, dad's favorite son, running around in his fancy little coat, and all those older brothers looked at him and couldn't stand it. He was everything they couldn't stand. And then at 17 years old, with already lots of disdain and dislike being pointed his way by his brothers, his jealous brothers, Joseph gallivants into a family meeting and says, I've had a couple dreams. Let me tell you about these dreams. We were out cutting wheat and we were putting them in sheaves of, of grain and, and I rose up above all of you and all of your sheets, sheaves of grain bowed down before me. And in this dream, Joseph is elevated and his brothers and his family serve him and bow down to him and his brothers were furious. You think you're going to rule over us, little brother? With your fancy coat? I don't think so. They hated him, the scripture says, even more for his dreams and for his words. He's like, yeah, but I had another dream where there was a a, a sun and a moon and 11 stars, and they all bowed down to me also. And even his father, Jacob, says to Joseph, look, you think I'm going to bow down to you, son? Like, what are you doing? And Joseph is puffed up and excited about his exalted status, and the text tells us that his brothers were jealous of him. Now, was Joseph just naive, or was he arrogant, or was he both? He was into himself. That's pretty clear. So his brothers concoct this plan. They conspire to kill their brother. They see him coming. They say, here comes that little dreamer. Let's kill him. How bad must hatred be in a family if brothers desire and plan to kill their little brother? A couple of his other brothers run interference. They decide not to kill him. They beat him up a little bit. And a passing caravan of Ishmaelites come by on their way to Egypt. So for a a couple of shekels, they sell their brother into slavery. They take his fancy little red coat or his little multicolored coat. They tear it, dip it in goat's blood and tell their father this lie. The family sin of deception continues as they tell their dad, oh, we found this and our little brother must have been killed by wild beasts. So here's Joseph sold and shackled with a caravan of Ishmaelites looking through bars at his brother as he heads down the road and they have hatred in their eyes, counting the shekels in their hand and his life takes a dramatic turn at 17. He heads down to Egypt. He's sold uh, into this place where he's serving the household of Potiphar. And he's gifted at what he does, and Potiphar's house prospers, and he finds himself kind of being the head of the household. And it's pretty awesome, but pretty quick, Potiphar's wife takes a shining to him. You probably know the story. And she wants to sleep with him, and he's not going to sleep with her. He seems to be a man of integrity. After many rejections, she approaches him one last time and grabs a hold of his clothes, and he runs to get away from her and leaves her with his clothes in her hand. And jilted by his rejections, Potiphar's wife concocts a story that she was raped by by Joseph, and he's arrested and thrown into prison. I mean, he's a foreigner in a foreign land, a slave, like he has no rights, so he's forgotten in prison. 
And of course, because he's Joseph, as soon as he gets in prison, he's suddenly the right-hand man to the keeper of the prison, because that's what Joseph does. And pretty soon, something must happen in Pharaoh's household. He was the biggest man in all the land. So Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker somehow wronged Pharaoh, so they get thrown in prison alongside Joseph, this foreigner who's in prison for a false accusation. And, and they have these really vivid dreams. And somehow, Joseph and his cellmates begin to talk about these vivid dreams. The cupbearer tells his dream, and the, and, the, and the baker tells his dream. And Joseph is able, by God, with some supernatural ability to, to interpret these dreams. And he says to the cupbearer, whose dream was about vines and wine and a bunch of stuff, he's like, no, no, this dream means that you're going to be restored to your position as cupbearer to Pharaoh. Take heart. And the baker's like, well, that was a favorable interpretation. What does my dream mean? His dream had to deal with some baskets on his head and some birds eating out of the basket, eating some cakes, and it's a weird dream. But Joseph says to him, oh, you're going to have your head cut off, and uh, birds are going to eat your, your corpse. And, and both were correct interpretations, and both things happen. And as the cupbearer's leaving to assume his position along the king as cupbearer, Joseph says, hey, man, don't forget me. I've been forgotten in this prison. I'm an innocent man. Don't forget me when you go and you start to serve Pharaoh again. But, of course, the cupbearer forgets him. So here he is, year 10, year 11, year 12, passed by, in prison, falsely accused, sold into slavery, forgotten by his family. But then the, the cupbearer is hanging out with the king and the, or the pharaoh, and pharaoh has a, some vivid dreams. Crazy dreams that have to do with fat cows being eaten by skinny, emaciated cows. Can't make sense of the dreams. And suddenly the cupbearer is like, oh yeah, that's right, I wasn't supposed to forget about that guy in prison two years later. Uh, hey, I knew this guy in prison, Pharaoh. His name was Joseph. He interpreted my dreams. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. He cleans him up, shaves him, put on some clothes. He comes to the king. And he says, the first thing he says to the king is like, I might interpret your dreams, but understand this. It's not me. God will give you a favorable interpretation. Like, this is not about me. It's about God. Whoa. What a difference from the, the naively arrogant young 17-year-old that was really stoked about being elevated above his brothers. There's like a humility that has been woven into this man after 13 years of imprisonment and slavery. It's not about me. It's about, it's about God, he says to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh tells him these dreams, and he's got two dreams about cows and one about corn stalks, seven plump corn heads or ears of corn, and, and seven blighted ears of corn, and the, the blighted ears eat the plump ears. It's these weird stories, but what it means, and Joseph interprets the dream to Pharaoh, saying there's going to be seven years of, of abundance in the land, followed by seven years of just backbreaking famine. And so then he devises a plan. He says, here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. You need to take advantage of the bumper years, store up all the food so that you survive the bad years, and you need to have someone who can oversee this whole process. And so Pharaoh's looking at this prisoner, and he says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And overnight, this prisoner is elevated to a position of, of being the vice regent for Pharaoh, put in all this authority and control to oversee this, this food acquisition plan, and in the midst of this, he, he meets his wife. She's the daughter of a prince. He has a couple sons. One's named Manasseh. The other is Ephraim. You know what those names mean? I mean, his fortunes have turned around. 13 years of imprisonment, 13 years of, of slavery, being betrayed by his brothers. He's 30 years old. It's been a long time, and he's, and he's given birth. He, him and his wife give birth to these two sons, and he looks at his son, Manasseh, and that name means forget the hardships of your father's house. And he looks at Ephraim, his son, which means fruitful in the land of affliction. And it seems as if Joseph has moved beyond the pain. It seems as if he said, I have forgotten the betrayal of my brothers. I've forgotten the, the, the occurrences of Canaan. And, I have and I'm living now in abundance in Egypt. I've moved beyond it. I'm fruitful in the land of affliction. And you think that's, if that's where the story ended, it would be great. But that's not where the story ends. Seven years of abundance. They do everything they're supposed to do, store up the food. But then the famine comes. And two years into the famine, Joseph's family that's still in Canaan, they're, they're suffering. Jacob is old now. His brothers have grown and changed over the 13 years since Joseph has been gone, and they're starving. And so jo Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get the food so they can survive. And here's Joseph living the good life, thinking he's moved on. And he looks down one day, second most powerful man in Egypt, and he sees his brothers. They don't recognize him. But he sees his brothers, and the text is just it's filled with language of weeping, just wailing, sobbing, heart-wrenching, emotive response. Maybe, just maybe, this wound that was inflicted to him by his brothers wasn't all healed up after all. Maybe there was some, some pain there that needed to be dealt with. And so 
Joseph begins to toy with his brothers a little bit. They still don't recognize who he is, and they go back and forth a couple of times, and he, he's testing their character, doing a couple little projects. And, and, and as you're watching Joseph over the two or three chapters in Genesis, you, you kind of see that old Joseph, maybe a little bit of him wanting to elevate himself and, and, and deceiving his brothers a little bit, but he's testing their character. And ultimately, Joseph is able to see that there has been a change in his brothers. They have a willingness to put themselves in harm's way. They have a real love for their dad. They're concerned for their little brother, Benjamin, and they want to protect him at all costs. And they're not the same petty, jealous, hateful brothers that sold him into slavery. Something has changed in them. And that takes us up to Genesis 45. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. And so here's Joseph in front of his brothers. They still don't know who he is, but he can take it no longer. Then Joseph could not control himself. All those who stood by him. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood behind him. And he cried and he said, make, make everyone go out from me. Such so as him and his brothers. No one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So here he is in front of the very men that had betrayed him 13 years earlier. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer for they were dismayed at his presence. Another translation says they were terrified. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine that has been in the land those two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see this scene? I mean, it's, we read it in eight verses, but imagine the, the humanity of this scene. Imagine these brothers, the shock and the horror, and then the fear that would have resulted is Joseph is weeping and he's crying. The brothers are dismayed and terrified. He makes them come near to him and they're not sure what to do. And he's worried about his dad and he's talking to them about how they sold him into slavery. Can you see the fear in this moment? The, the, the grief, the guilt, the shame, the sorrow, and, and the, the hint of joy that their brother is alive and maybe there can be a reunion. All of these, this, this quagmire of emotions swirling around this room. And notice also in verses 4 and 5 that two times Joseph says to his brothers, you did this. You sold me into Egypt. You sold me into Egypt. You sold me here. So his brothers of their own agency had done this thing to their brother. But then in, in chapter, or in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, three times he says, but really it was God who sent me. God sent me before you to preserve life, verse 5. Verse 7, he says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. In verse 8, he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So which is true? Which is true? Did the brother sell Joseph into slavery? Or did God send Joseph to Egypt to save many? Which is true? Well, both are. The brothers did conspire and scheme to destroy their brother. And God did use the evil intentions of the brothers to accomplish his larger will. And that's why Joseph is able to assert three times to his brothers, it was God who sent me to Egypt to preserve life. In verse 9, he tells them, go, go tell my father. Go tell my father, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord in all of Egypt. Don't go and tell dad that you betrayed me, that you ripped my coat off my back while I was beaten and bloodied, and you made up a horrible lie as you kicked me into Egypt and sold me for a couple pieces of, of, of shekel or a couple shekels. Don't go tell dad the story how you slaughtered a goat and spilled goat's blood on my, jacket, my, 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 my robe of many colors. Don't tell that horrible story of your betrayal. Go tell dad the larger story that God has been telling. 
Go tell that of the greater story that God sent me to Egypt that your life might be preserved. And now, unless Joseph was flatly contradicting himself, he must mean that his brothers were not the ones ultimately responsible. I read this week that while both they and God exercised genuine agency, only God's agency is ultimate. Their choice is a part of God's plan. And so Joseph sends his brothers to get their father. They come down to Egypt. The family is preserved. And they settle there. And not only is the family, Joseph's family, saved, but many families are saved because of all of these events that unfolded. So God providentially redeemed Joseph's story for his glory and for the good of Joseph and others. And this is the idea of providence. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. You sold me into Egypt, but God sent me down here to preserve life. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know and to fully understand how it is that human agency and divine agency work together. I'm not smart enough to understand the complexity of all of that. I do know that we struggle to understand how both can be true. We tend to err by falling in one of two uh, ditches, if you will. So if understanding the providence of God is this road we're trying to stay on today, that both can be true, that both man can have human agency, but God has a divine plan that's over all of that. To, to, there's two ditches that I think we can fall on. In, in one ditch, we can call it trauma identity, and the other ditch we can call toxic positivity. In the one ditch of trauma identity, there is a refusal to see beyond the pain that has been inflicted on us by the hands of others. We identify by our trauma. And we have generations being raised now that, that are great at diagnosing trauma, but they're horrible at, at providing like a prognosis and remedies and a treatment for the trauma. And so we have a whole generation of people that have a social currency attached to how victimized they can be and how deep the trauma runs. And they live in this ditch, refusing to lift their eyes above their pain. And on the other side of the road, there's another ditch. We'll call it toxic positivity. This is a refusal to deal honestly with the impact of pain in our lives. Put on a smile. Just power ahead. Don't deal with what's going on underneath the surface. This ditch is awful at diagnosis. It's awful at prognosis, but they're pretty good at treatment. But the problem is they're using Advil to treat uh, an amputated leg. And so the idea is understanding the providence of God is to live honestly with this tension of human agency and divine agency. That God is sovereign over this, that he's working out his good will, that we could look at our life, look at our family, look at the world and say, God, you are sovereign and you are providentially orchestrating the events of humankind and in what, what man means for evil, God, you will use for your good and I believe that to be true and I'm going to stay on this road and I'm not going to fall into trauma identity. I'm not going to be a phony and fall into toxic positivity. I'm going to walk intimately and honestly with you in the midst of pain. I imagine Joseph standing there in that moment, the four generations that led up to that, it was his great-grandfather, Abraham, that was told by God that through you, uh, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately, Jesus came and fulfilled that prophecy. But in a smaller way, here's Joseph, and it's through Joseph and all these random, horrible sets of circumstances, finds himself in Egypt, is able to store up seven years' worth of abundance so that all the nations of the earth around Egypt are literally saved because of the way in which Joseph was providentially placed in Egypt for that season. And God used all of it. He used the jealous hatred of brothers. He used the dreams of a young man. He used the conniving, murderous conspiracy of, of some angry, jealous brothers. He used the passage of a random caravan. God used uh, uh, and prepared Joseph by a life of hardship and adversity, false accusations, false imprisonment. 13 years, God used that to prepare Joseph for something greater. He used the anger of Pharaoh towards a cupbearer and a baker. He used the strange ability for Joseph to interpret dreams. He used the dream in Pharaoh's life to get Joseph out of prison. He used all of this so that Joseph could supernaturally interpret Pharaoh's dreams and be elevated to the number two position in all of Egypt. He changed weather patterns to bring seven years of abundance and seven years of famine so that this family in Canaan would journey south to be saved. God used all of it. He was sovereign over every little detail. And I can imagine at every one of those junctures, every one of those intersections in life, you could have thought, what in the world? Really? 
God, are you even, are you awake? Are you alive? Are you real? Why are you letting this happen? At every one of those intersections, you could have made that claim. But as we look now at 30,000 feet back at the whole story, we see how God is providentially orchestrating the events of history for our good and for his glory. Imagine the Rogue River, if you will. Doesn't the Rogue River start up by Union Creek? Isn't that the source, the origin of the Rogue River? Am I right, locals? Yeah? So imagine the Rogue River. We all know it goes from east to west, and it dumps out into the Pacific. We all know that. But if you were to jump in an inner tube and float down the river, there's going to be times in the Rogue River you're going north. There's going to be times in the Rogue River you're going south. There's going to be times in the Rogue River you're actually going east, the opposite direction of, of where it's going. But the overall story of the Rogue River is that it is flowing into the ocean. There's many twists and turns along the way, but we know where it's going. There are many twists and turns in our lives. Sometimes they feel like God is asleep at the wheel, but his plan is unfolding exactly the way he desires for it to unfold. God was providential over the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was providential over the pain that befell Joseph. And he used it all to fulfill his purpose. Now listen, God providentially redeemed Joseph's story for his glory and for the good of Joseph and others. Now finally, what about you and me? The title of my sermon today is Generational Stories of Redemption. How might God be at work in our lives to bring about redemption of even the most painful of experiences? When I store up a bunch of bottles in my house and cans, I go to the Bottle Drop Redemption Center. You guys go there? And I didn't know how this worked when I moved to Oregon, but evidently every time you buy a can of soda or a bottle of soda, you pay 10 cents to the state or whatever. It's a deposit. And then you store up all these empty bottles and cans and you take them down to the Bottle Redemption Center and you get your money back. So you drag in these bags of trash, dirty and used, and you exchange them and you receive something in return. You redeem the bottles and cans to get this reward in return. This is a picture of redemption. There's an exchange or a ransom that takes place. This word for redemption that we see in Romans 3, it's a Greek word that means a releasing affected by payment of ransom. So something is released because a ransom has been paid. Redemption, it's deliverance. It's a liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. The word redemption just most easily means to, to buy out. And it was mostly used to, to talk about uh, the purchase of a slave's freedom. But when we think about it in the context of Christianity, I think of what Paul writes in, in Romans 3. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all slaves to sin. Romans 3.24, but we're all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If we're redeemed by God through Jesus Christ, then before the intervention of Jesus in our lives, we were slaves. We needed redeeming. Which means God has purchased our freedom. We're no longer in the bondage to sin. And related to the word of redemption is the word ransomed, which means that for those who have trusted in Jesus, he has paid the price for your release from sin and punishment. This is just the doctrine of redemption. His death was the ransom in exchange for your life. The scripture is clear that redemption comes through the blood of Jesus. By his death, we are ransomed to life. Jesus paid the price to redeem us, which means we now have freedom from slavery to sin, and we've been rescued. Amen. It's our hope. Jesus took our bags of shame and he gave us his righteousness. That's what the cross accomplished. When this happens, when you and I are born from death to life, when we're born again into the family of God, when we are, our sins are forever forgiven, when we receive God's grace to walk as children of God, this is redemption with a capital R. It's our salvation. And as redeemed men and women who've been ransomed from death to life, we then begin to see redemption with a lowercase r being worked out in our life, in different areas of our life as God begins to bring redemption to various areas of our life. And this is part of what we've been talking about over the last four weeks. And so the question becomes for you and for me, how might God be redeeming your story? As you look at your family and your family of origin and the story from which you come, how might God be redeeming your story? Those redeemed by Christ go from death to life. They experience God's redemptive hand at work in their lives. 
And over the last three weeks, we've been looking at just different aspects of our family of origin. Generational sin patterns, the way in which we relate to one another. We've looked at the stories that we tell ourselves. We've asked you to fill out workbooks and do some work and asking God by his spirit through the counsel of his word to to, to journey forward in healthy ways as we seek to become the people that God wants us to be. And so the question becomes for us today as we look back through the lens of providence over the course of our lives, how might God be redeeming generational sin patterns in your family? How do you and I, how do we exchange the baggage of the past generational sin for a future of redeemed righteousness? What does this look like for us? There's a million generational sins. Maybe for you, generational sins are substance abuse or chemical dependency or addiction in your families. Maybe for you, it's a tendency towards overwork, measuring success in the wrong way, prioritizing the wrong things. Maybe in your family, it was a failure to set healthy boundaries resulting in people pleasing and victimization. Maybe for you, it was uh, uh, health, uh, poor health, habitually poor health, on, an ongoing failure of those in your family to steward well your health. And so what does God's redemption look like when it comes to these generational sin patterns? And there's a million generational sin patterns. I just threw out those four as a for example. And as we chatted about this as a staff, and as we thought about this being lived out in the lives of believers, how have we seen God redeem some of these generational sin patterns? And one of the ways it seemed to crop up the most as we chatted was through this idea of contrast. I mean, as you grew up in a family or a family system that did things one way, and that wasn't healthy and that was harmful, perhaps as God did a work in your life, you said, I don't want that for my family. I actually, I want to live differently in my family. Seeing the devastation of addiction of a previous generation, perhaps you chose in contrast to live differently in your home. Or perhaps recognizing the adverse effects of overwork in previous generations, perhaps you chose to contrast that and set priorities differently, more in line with what God would have you set. In your family. Maybe for you, when you saw the pain and trauma caused by a boundaryless home, you said in your family, yeah, it's not going to be that way in my family. I'm going to create healthy boundaries in my home. I'm going to protect myself and my kids and my loved ones from the pain and trauma that I experienced growing up. Maybe you witnessed the limitations of, and the painful effects of, of, of the poor stewardship of physical health, and you said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to change my habits and my patterns so that I can steward my health for the glory of God. Sometimes... It's awesome to see, as I saw in my family, sometimes the redemptive hand of God intervenes in a life. It doesn't have to go from generation to generation. You see someone go from death to life by the power of God, and you see God begin to do a transformative work in the person real time. I saw that in my mother. From a broken addict who was concerned only with herself to a woman walking in recovery and pursuing Jesus. It happened in her life real time. God, by his spirit, did a redemptive work in front of our eyes. How might God be redeeming relational patterns in your life? How do you exchange the unhealthy relational patterns of the past for future patterns of relationships that are redeemed and that are healthy? And again, there's a million relational patterns that we come from, good, bad, and ugly. The difficult ones, absent parents or divorced families or ongoing sexual sin or a home that's filled with constant anger. What does that look like? to see that redeemed by God, to see God redeem those things, and how might he even be providentially at work in your family of origin to take even the difficult things that you experienced in your family of origin or that your generations have experienced, and how, how might God providentially be using that to move you forward in a healthy way that brings him glory and that is for your good? where you can look at these generational tendencies, these relationship tendencies, and you can say, you know what, I see how it's been modeled in my family, but in Christ I've I've been adopted into a new family. And we have a new way of relating to one another. I'm no longer bound to these relational patterns that I've inherited. And so we take the time to recognize the dysfunction and the lies that have led to the unhealthy ways of relating. But as God does a work in us by his Holy Spirit, and as he gives us understanding, we learn to live with and relate to others in a new way for his glory. Think about the stories that we tell. Jimmy unpacked this last week in our teaching. How how can we learn to exchange the untrue stories we tell about ourselves in the past to the future stories of redemption and truth in the future? 
How do we learn to tell new stories? For those, those I, I, I totally get what it's like to have this, this story that's like a tape recorder in my mind, and I know the truth that it's not true, but I still find myself in moments of weakness of rewinding and playing and rewinding and playing and rewinding and playing the same old negative story that's not true, but it's so hard for me to get away from that. It's so hard for me to, 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 to leave that at the foot of the cross and not let it be an influence in my daily life. And so those, those lies look a million ways. I mean, one of the lies we might tell ourselves is I'm only lovable if I'm performing. But rather than believing that lie, we, the gospel reminds us that, that I'm loved by God who, who performed for me and the good works that, that I'm called to do are an outflow of someone who is fully loved. We tell a new story that, that rather than believing that because I'm wounded by others, I, I, no one can be trusted, we, we, we learn to remind ourselves through the gospel that there is one who can be fully trusted. And we have security in him. And, and when others fail me, because they will, I can go to him. And so we see the way in which the redemption begins to happen in our lives. And we see how the gospel providentially redeems our stories for God's glory and for our good. And so, what does providence look like applied in your own individual story? You've done the work over the last three weeks. If you're to look back over your life, if you're to look back over your family of origin, good, bad, and ugly, and if you're able to say like Joseph said, it's incredible that Joseph could say this, but he could say even in, in light of all the difficult and painful things, he said God did this. What, what, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So how do we do this? In a very practical way, how do you and I begin to see God's providential hand at work even in the most difficult portions of our story? Well, I, I, just four very practical things to finish up for today that I want to share with you. Number one, how do we do this? Well, we have to take the, the hand of God. We have to take the hand of God, which is a very intimate thing to do. I mean, how do I hand my angst over to, to God? How do I trust him with it? Well, we ha I can't trust God if I don't know him. And so we have to take the hand of God. We have, to, we have to seek after him, to know him, to hear from him, to worship him, to talk with him, to know the character of God, to study the character of God, to meet with God, to know him, to worship him with others. And when we get to know the very character of God, we come to learn that he is not indifferent to our pain. When we were going through the most painful seasons in our life, when it felt like he was a million miles away, nothing further could, there could be nothing further from the truth. I'm mindful of what the psalmist says, that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The psalmist tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said that those who mourn are blessed because they'll be comforted, because he draws near. I mean, when, when Lazarus died and people were grieving at the graveside of Lazarus, Jesus joined them and wept with them. We see the heart of God. He's not this indifferent God who observes the affairs of our lives from far off, utterly unaffected from the, the human reality of our daily existence. No, 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 no. God not only has providence over your pain, he is present with you in it, and he's redeeming it. So we've got to hold his hand in the process. We don't do this apart from him. Secondly, we've got to trust him with our stuff. We've got to trust him with all of our stuff. He knows all of our stuff anyway, so we can't hide it from him. And it's not like we can just, we bring a portion of ourselves to God and we leave the other stuff over here hidden and out of sight. We have to trust him with our stuff. We have to, we have to come to him with the whole of ourselves, all of it. Our, our family of origin, our internal life, our internal dialogues, our hidden sins, all of it. We have to trust him with our stuff. And he's gentle and he's lowly. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, he says. My burden is light. If he can redeem your soul and take you from death to life, don't you think he can redeem the details of your life? He can bring redemption to broken relationships and generational sin patterns, and he can help you learn to retell a story that is true and not a story that is false. So bring it to him. Trust him. Talk honestly with him. Lay it before him. And the third thing, which I think is so important, is teach others what you've learned. 
Teach others what you've learned. Look for ways that your story, the good, the bad, the ugly, the pain, and the victories of your, of your story uniquely qualifies you to be used in the lives of others, especially your painful moments. And this is really interesting. When we learn to begin to minister to others out of our most painful seasons of life, that's one of the ways in which we begin to see the redemptive hand of God at work real time on this side of glory. As you learn to trust God and walk with him through difficult times, you begin to realize that your journey is writing a blueprint that you will one day share with others so that when they confront what you have confronted, they have a friend and they have wisdom for the journey. I see this happening all the time in our church, organically. I see married couples who've had hard seasons coming alongside married couples who are entering hard seasons. Married couples who've had hard seasons who found healing going back and, and ministering to couples that are entering into difficult seasons. I, I see it with recovering addicts coming alongside people in the midst of addiction struggles and, and sharing friendship and hope and accountability. I see it when parents of older kids come alongside parents with younger kids and offer wise counsel and help them. I see it when parents who have had prodigals who've wandered and have dealt with the heartbreak of that, I see that when they minister to, to younger parents who are dealing with the same thing. I see it when people who were once prodigal, who have come back to Jesus, can go and minister to one another and say, no, God is running after your child just like God was running after me. I see it especially for those who've experienced losses and death, those who've, who've wept at the graveside of loved ones, who've journeyed that, who've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I've seen them come back and minister in powerful ways to the people in the church who are tempted to believe untrue things about God in the midst of loss. But wounded healers come and provide friendship and wisdom and presence. It goes on and on and on. I think one of the primary ways we create a culture of disciples making disciples is when we learn that God has uniquely given us providentially the lives he's given us. And he redeems our lives so that we can begin to minister to one another in a beautiful way of disciple making disciples. So we, we take the hand of God, we trust him with our stuff. We teach others what we've learned. And like Jeremy said last week, we, we tell the gospel to ourselves daily. The gospel is the ultimate story of God's divine providence. As we chatted about this as a staff, I asked the staff this last week, so what are some of the questions that, that people are going to ask at the end of the series and at the end of this teaching, especially on God's providence? And, and these two questions came up. What, what do I do when those I love cannot see God's providential hand in their story when they're stuck in this trauma identity and they just cannot believe that God would ever be provident over such a brutal season of pain? What do I do when that happens? And what do I do if there's zero evidence real time in their lives at this moment that God is at work bringing redemption and hope? What, what do we say to those people? The gospel is the answer. So we continue to pray and we continue to remember the gospel and we ask God to soften the hearts of our loved ones, our loved ones. It's because the gospel is the answer. Imagine, if you will, for a second, the day that Jesus died. Imagine you're a follower of Jesus on that day. You know, you followed this man, you've seen him teach and perform miracles, and you've dedicated your life, you've left everything to follow him. You have this idea in your mind of how the will of God is going to unfold, and you've, you've aligned yourself with Jesus because you really understand, you think, the trajectory of his life and ministry and so you're in Jerusalem. It's been a three-year journey with you. This is the culminating moment of your, your allegiance to Jesus and the ideas that you have about what's going to happen in and through him. But suddenly he gets arrested and you're like, wait, 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 wait. This, isn't, this, isn't, this doesn't align with, with my plan. This is, this is not what we talked about. And then you watch as this weird trial transpires through the course of a night and you watch as, as he gets whipped within an inch of his life and his skin is torn from his bones and he's bleeding, clinging on to life. You watch as his, uh, his arresters spit on him and mock him and punch him. You watch as a, as, a, as a guilty man is released in his place and he, an innocent man, is, is sent to the cross. You're watching all this unfold. You're thinking, what, what in the world is happening? You watch as he's raised up on a cross between two thieves and as his life is draining out of him. You listen to him as he wails my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You watch as he whispers his last breath, bows his head and dies as a, spears plunge, as a spear plunges through his ribs as the sky goes dark and the earth shakes. What are you thinking in that moment? I know what I'd be thinking. God is dead. The sky is dark. 
Nothing good can come from this. There's no way that God's providence is going to work this one out. This is the worst day ever. That's what I'm thinking. Think of all the awful twists and turns hanging that led to Jesus hanging on the cross. I mean, he was the only truly innocent sufferer. We, we, Joseph was an innocent sufferer, but he wasn't innocent. Jesus was the only truly innocent sufferer. He was betrayed by his friend and abandoned by his other friends. Who could have ever guessed that it was that very act of Jesus dying on a cross that was the very means by which redemption would be secured for humankind and for all of creation? Now listen, could it be that God not only redeems you, not only that God redeems your story, might it even be that through the most painful seasons of your story, that that is actually the epicenter of where God is doing his most significant work in your life? Think of the horror of the cross that led to life and hope. Might it be that actually the most painful seasons in your life, the most painful moments, those darkest days, are the very means by which God is shaping you into his image, molding you into his image that he might be glorified in and through you. Now listen, fate is blind, providence has eyes, and God is for us. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for an opportunity over the last four weeks to think about who we are in you, to think about the impact that our families and our histories have had upon who we are today. God, I pray that for each of us, Lord, as we, as we think about and wrestle with and consider all of this, God, I pray that you'd help us to, to come to a deep understanding that the gospel providentially redeems our story for your glory and for our good. God, I pray that that wouldn't just be a, a placard or a, a, a saying that we say, but God, I pray that as we, as we look at this amazing truth that, that you orchestrate things in such a way that, that even what is meant for evil is, 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 is designed and used by you for, for our good and for your glory. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that truth, not just in our mind, but in a very lived and felt way. So God, I just think of every man and woman here, every family system that is represented, God, every story that is represented, every family line that's represented here and now in this place. And God, we just ask that you would, that you would reveal yourself to us. You give us eyes to see the way in which you're redeeming things in our presence and the way in which you are shaping and forming and calling us to walk moving forward into the future, God. Thank you that you sent your son Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you that in and through Jesus, we are saved and we are adopted into a new family and we have a new story to tell. God, help us to begin to tell that story over our lives. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.